For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a conversation with Tucson nature artist Rachel Ivani about her new gallery show at the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum. Arizona Daily Star Street Smarts columnist David Layton looks into why one local town's name has been causing confusion since the 1800s. And a profile of water harvester Brad Lancaster and how he brought transformation to his Tucson neighborhood. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Rachel Ivani's creative passion is for wild animals and making art about them. Her new exhibition at the Desert Museum is called Desert Fables, and it features recent work that also explores these animals' potential secret lives. I began by asking why Rachel Livani says art is her first language. My brain is very good at doing opposites, so I could, it's not just a right-left switching, is that if I get very involved in my art creative process, then words sometimes do not come out clearly. Clearly, so <laughs> like that, <laughs> and it's uh, entertaining because I also teach fitness, and so I have to be very good about right and left. But folks have gotten very used to me, especially if I've been working on a lot of art projects, that they watch my hand movements and watch what I do versus what I say sometimes. So I've just always joked that yeah, you know, art is my first language and English is second. And when did you first begin to produce art? I touched on art, and I liked to do clay when I was a kid, mm-hmm. and my mom's an artist, and my dad's an engineer, and so I, I did sculpture, and, but I didn't think I was going to be an artist growing but, up. But it was but an encouraging it atmosphere. It was definitely a very, it was a very encouraging atmosphere, and so I enjoyed it, and I thought I was going to be an animal sculptor, and then I realized, wait, I need to make a living, and I decided I wanted to be a vet, and I always loved animals, but I went through every round of type of animal that you could be a vet for. I worked at the Raptor Center and when I went to UC Davis and there was a golden eagle though that had um, torn its talons between, you know, between two of its talons and I had to be, I was the one holding it and it woke up when I was under anesthesia and started screaming. And at the time I had been drawing all the owls that were at the Raptor Center just for fun. And I thought, I went home and I thought, huh, is there a, is there a career in art <laughs> in drawing these birds? And so it was a series of owl drawings and that golden eagle, you know, kind of set me straight that I wanted to do the art, so science illustration instead of being a vet. <laughs> You said that you moved to Tucson in 1996. Did you anticipate the influence that the desert would have on your art and the inhabitants of the desert, most importantly? I didn't. I was in Santa Cruz and science illustration, and my idol at the time, and still is one of my idols, is Robert Stubbins. He did the field guide of Western reptiles and amphibians. And I had um, met him and showed him. At that point, I was only drawing pretty much reptiles and amphibians. I met him and he told me, hey, there's this place out in, in Tucson called the Desert Museum that's using my art in the front lizard enclosure. You should probably you know, check them out because of the high percentage of reptiles out here. And then you know, I needed an internship for grad school. And so I reached out and they took me in the summer and I 
drove out here and it was in the middle of June and I came from the mountains of Santa Cruz and I thought, oh my gosh, what what did I do? I was, <laughs> but yeah. then I came over Gates Pass and then saw the desert and then I was living on the grounds for 10 weeks and it was pretty much me and I'm not a morning person, but then I was and I'd walk the parking lot because you know, the grounds was closed you know, until regular hours, but I'd walk the parking lot in the morning and the desert, I just fell in love with all the textures and colors. And I mean, can't have more rattlesnakes than here. The smells, gosh, yeah. It was magical then and I don't tire of it. Never, always flying back and then seeing, yeah, the color difference, textures, and I love it here. What is your relationship to the Desert Museum today? I've been teaching there. They have an art institute. I've been teaching before they had an art institute. So I'm one of their instructors with, um, been there 20 plus, 25 years. Yeah, so (laughs) I teach a lot of different animal-focused classes and I teach watercolor and I teach a project class. I teach a lot, so it's definitely heart. So that's my main as a um, contract artist. And then I also have um, some exhibitions out there. That's actually what we're talking today because yes. you have a new exhibition and it's based around a book that was featured on Spotlight some time ago. We'll have a link to it so that people oh, can wonderful. go back and visit if they'd like. But it's a very unusual book called A Neotenic Queen written by Alejandro Canelos. Um, what can you tell me about that project when it was first pitched to you and how you went about the process of creating illustrations? This was a dream illustration job. So Alejandro found me through the Art Institute. He had gotten their catalog of student art and then looked into who the instructors were. And in checking out my website, he had seen a Fena Pepla that I had made the berries into eyeballs. And so he had liked that I had done a little bit magical realism, but still had a lot, you know, in science. And so our first conversation, finding out what a science nerd he was, like me, and his passion about the desert, and he had shared a couple of his stories, and I was just blown away by how creative they were. And we started with um, illustrating a couple. So Jake the Snake, that was our first, and that was such a fun project because to get the reference for it, you know, being connected with the museum for as long as I was, and then I was, we were able to Um, use some of the models and getting the just again some of the photos of I now call him Jake the museum but him to calm down and again giving him water um, it was the same thing so again befriending and I love this whole concept of taking critters that a lot of people maybe get scared of or are creeped out by you know we have the spiders and the snakes and the termites termites and all these yeah it's just Each story was just a new surprise. It was really fun. The heart of his storytelling, I think, is that he explores the inner worlds of these creatures. He he fantasizes about what their personalities would be like, and they all have language abilities. It reveals that a lot of these animals, and sometimes plants, can be just as neurotic and deluded as humans can be. How would you say that Alejandro's envisionment of the inner life of these creatures influenced your illustrations? The inner workings of all these characters definitely played in my illustrations. I, I wanted them to be scientifically accurate on one level, but then I wanted their feelings to come through. And so being able to kind of show expressions in their face or get the sense of, you know, they have either this competition or this 
uh, camaraderie or this love or whatever it is, a lot of times people will separate themselves from animals and put them above or better than or different. And I think this book really shows through Alejandro's creativity um, that we aren't that different. And it's just was so fun to kind of take some of those stories and go a little more wild with it. So we didn't have to be 100% sciencey, you know, but it's, he has the index, if you're questioning things, we love if people think, that's that right? You know, so, but it just was a blast. I mean, every time we get a new story, we would do batches of four. And every time we'd get a new story, he'd want me to kind of figure out which illustration I would want to do. And almost every time we had the same scene, because we didn't want to show the climax of the story, but kind of leading up, you know, so people didn't give it away. So one of the most interesting stories in the book, and one of the most scientific illustrations in the book, revolves around the saguaro Uh cactus, Mm -hmm. which is usually depicted as being these regal monarchs of the (laughs) desert. And Alejandro reveals in his book that they actually can have some pretty twisted personalities, that they're not the nicest neighbors uh, necessarily. So uh, tell me about creating that specific illustration, because it, it really does harken back to botany books from the 1800s or something like that. Yeah, on that one, he, in in discussing it with him, thought it would be funny to have this very scientific plate, but then having it with their names, you know, the Handy Andy and Rowdy, and having the description kind of describing each of them as, as characters. And I like that the groupings of the stories, you know, even though they're all short stories that stand alone, they also relate to each other. So when you learn about, you know, the, the woodpeckers involved and how they, you know, work together with the saguaros. It's just really fun to, you know, we're, we're learning a lot more about how, you know, different plants communicate. And so it's not that far off. You know, I think I'd be angry if I got a whole bunch of woodpecker holes in me too. But it just, again, that wanting each of the stories we liked, we played like the termite one, kind of having a, that feeling of like a Star Wars kind of dark. And on this one, having that more traditional feel again, that play on it really being that these are are kind of wild, but they wanted to be regal and shown in this very majestic way. Each one, it was just so fun to play yeah. with styles. So. And Handy Andy, by the way, is a clubbed uh, saguaro, yes. I believe they're called. So what will people see if they come to this gallery show that celebrates the work you did for the Neotenant Queen? If you have the ebook, this was originally designed to be an ebook with full color, and then we're hoping eventually this will be a full color, you know, hardback book. But a lot of people have the paperback, and the illustrations are in black and white, and so they'll get to see all the original art. They'll get to see. I did a full size map of Tucson with all these um, characters involved. With each of these illustrations, we did preliminary sketches, and so I did all my process work that I would do doing um, either pencil sketches or loose watercolor, so people can see that really have an interest in kind of the process of art. And being an art school, it's nice because you know a lot of the people can see like how this is done, that it's not just an instant painting. And I also did a few other large canvas pieces that were inspired by the story. So there's there's a lot to see. Rachel Levani's art can be seen in Desert Fables, illustrations from The Neotenant Queen. It's at the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum's Baldwin Gallery through October 28th. You can see some of Rachel's wildlife paintings and also listen to my interview with Neotenant Queen author Alejandro Canelos on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. 
It's writer David Layton's job to explore local history and unearth the facts behind local legends for his monthly Street Smarts column in the Arizona Daily Star. Next, Layton tells the history behind an unusual place name that people have been pronouncing in different ways for more than a century and a half. So this one actually dates back to the days when I was in high school. Uh, Sometimes I'd go down to Nogales with friends to do a little partying, and I'd always pass by the sign that would read Saudita. And I'd always ask my friends, many of them who are native Spanish speakers, what is a Saudita? And I usually hear, I don't know, or that doesn't mean anything. But if it was Saudito with an O, it would mean little Saworo. Hmm. So I've always been curious since the days of high school of where that name came from. So what's the first step in this journey? How do we understand the naming of this place? The earliest known knowledge of it dates back to uh, about 1820. Uh, You have the brothers Tomas and Ignacio Ortiz. Um, They actually requested or petitioned the governor of Sonora and Sinaloa, which was one state at that point, uh, rather than two separate states of Mexico. Uh, They petitioned for a land grant of four sitios, uh, which is more than 27 square miles, of land around La Canoa, what was called La Canoa. Now, this is 1820. If you know your history, you'll know this is a year before Mexico won its independence from Spain and was then no longer part of the Spanish Empire. So it was Uh, a bad time to put in uh, government paperwork. Yeah, there was a lot of things going on at that point, so it wasn't, uh, wasn't the best time to petition for this. So how long did it take for them to get an affirmative answer? Uh, they had to go through the process of having it surveyed and appraised and then auctioned uh, by the, at this point, Ignacio Elias Gonzalez, who was commander of the two-back military posts for Spain. They actually didn't get the land-grant paperwork until 1849. So like 28, 29 years later. Yep. All the havoc of Mexico winning its independence from Spain. When they first appraised the San Ignacio de la Canoa land grant, describes a vast domain that stretched from Tubac to the south to El Saguarito, with a G instead of an H and an O instead of A, where there exists a plant of this tree, which remains as a landmark to the north. (laughs) This tree. It's kind of funny, the words and phrasing like they used to put back in the 1800s, but that's actually how they described it, actually mention El Saurito. It was a kind of a landmark where people knew. Uh, Back in the 1800s, you pretty much only had two cities in what became Arizona. Uh, You had Tubac and Tucson. And the Saurito was essentially a saguaro, kind of an odd-shaped saguaro that was normally used as a landmark. Uh-huh. Uh, so if you were traveling from Tubac to Tucson and you saw El Saurito, you knew you were X amount of miles or kilometers from Tucson. And the same thing <laughs> from going from Tucson to Tubac, you kind of knew if you hit this odd little shaped saguaro known as El Saurito, that you were X amount of kilometers or miles from the other city. Well, things may have changed in the terrain in the last hundred or so years, but I think about how precarious it would be to base your expedition's lives on spotting the right saguaro. But if we jump ahead in time a little bit, you've got an account from John Spring, somebody who was stationed at Camp Lowell at the time, 
who says, At nightfall, we stopped at a place called Saharito, Little Giant Cactus, for an isolated plant of that kind growing near the place, which was an eating and watering station kept by someone named Benedict, about 25 miles south of Tucson. So, uh, originally, a former Union soldier by the name of Cyrus S. Rice settled uh, next to the Saurito, and he kept a little ranch there for a little while before he sold it uh, to a Mr. Benedict. Uh, Mr. Benedict set up a stage stop where people traveling between Tucson and Tubac could stop, water their horses, feed their horses, uh, and I think they also could stay for the night as well. And that's what it became known as like a stage stop. Yeah, that's the same way that Las Vegas started. The uh, next step after Benedict was uh, an individual by the name of James K. Brown purchased the Saurita Ranch from Benedict. And he also not only set up a ranch, but at one point in 1882, he set up the post office in that area. And it was called the Saurito post office. By this time, it's being spelled with an H and an O uh, rather than a G. Now that post office existed about four years. Um, His wife, Olive, was the assistant. He was the postmaster there. So I interviewed uh, his granddaughter, Olive Brand, and she told me their ranch was always known as the Saurito Ranch, not the Saurita Ranch. And she kind of laughed about it because the family never understood how it ended up to being Saurita when the ranch itself that the family had owned had always been Saurito. But in 1915, now, Mr. Brown sold off his ranch uh, in the, I think it was 1880s or 1890s, and not much happened in that area up until about 1915. People started moving in, companies started buying up the land because the land was right next to the Santa Cruz River, which still had water in it. So at that point in 1915, they reopened or reestablished a post office and it was named Saurita with an A. And since then, the post office in town has always been called Saurita with an A. And it's grown a lot from a watering hole into a whole community. To a fast growing town. What did you find in this story that was the most interesting to you or something that you take away from the story that helped to define what it meant? I think the most interesting thing that my research showed uh, was going back to the original land grant um, and discovering that it was a landmark utilized in a survey and that even by 1820, people knew about this little swirl. Um, It was unique and however it was, whether it was a shape or exactly what made it unique, I'm not really sure. But even in 1820, when it was part of Spain, people knew about this little cactus and that defined the name of the area that they used for a survey. One of the first noteworthy spots in the state. Could be. My guest, David Layton, writes the Street Smarts column that appears on the first Monday of every month in the Arizona Daily Star. Water conservation can be a dry subject for many people. 
but not Tucson resident Brad Lancaster, the subject of a profile that recently aired on Arizona Illustrated on PBS6. It has just been recognized with the National Edward R. Murrow Award, one of the highest honors in broadcast news and feature reporting. Joining me now is Arizona Illustrated nature and environment producer David Finster to explain how he became interested in Lancaster and his mission. My wife gave me Brad's book uh, many years ago, and it kind of languished on the shelf. And just before the pandemic, we bought our first house, and there was basically no landscaping in the house. There were a couple of trees that had been there for a while, but it was mostly just bare earth. So I got Brad's book off the shelf, and the way the book is written, it's very user-friendly, and there's like really fun drawings, and everything seems very clear. And so I, I thought, I'll try some of these things out. I have nothing to lose, because it's just bare earth anyway. It was all very simple, and and then, you know, a year later, the yard was like completely transformed into a completely lush uh, environment, and I was so blown away that somebody with basically no experience and no fancy tools or anything like that could could create that kind of transformation just with these simple methods that, that Brad wrote about in his book. A lot of the techniques that Brad Lancaster espouses, he learned while in Zimbabwe under a man named Mr. Firi Maseko. Now, he's no longer with us, but there is footage of him in your story. So how did that footage come to you? How were you able to incorporate that into your piece? I'd heard Brad talk about Mr. Firi Maseko and what a huge impact he had on his ideas and his life and what an important mentor he was. He's also prominently featured in Brad's books. And so I thought it was really important not just to hear Brad talk about Mr. Firi Maseko, but actually try to get some footage of him speaking and, and seeing him on his land and that kind of thing. And so I started looking online and um, found a really nice uh, documentary that was made about him in the early 2000s. And so I reached out to the, the filmmaker and he was kind enough to, to allow us to use it in our film. One of Brad's strengths that really comes across in the piece is how affirmative and supportive, um, inspiring he is. He really sticks to the high road. He lives the way he advocates. What would you say about Brad's positivity in teaching these lessons about water? Yeah, someone mentions it in the film. Brad really does believe that abundance is possible. And I think we're made to believe a lot of times that there's always something lacking or there's a sort of scarcity mentality. But he really does preach and practice this idea of abundance. And you see that play out in the environment he's created on his property and in his neighborhood and now, you know, throughout the city, throughout the world where his ideas have spread. You know, I think that's a really powerful idea and one that's reflected in the natural world, that there is this great abundance if you can let those systems do their thing. Mm -hmm. If we can support them rather than working against them. Exactly. Well, thank you for doing the diligence and putting in the work to create this feature and congratulations on earning a Murrow Award for AZPM. Thank you. I'd like to help create a system so I can abandon it and it'll thrive without me. The systems in our built environment are completely dependent on people and continuous inputs. And I find it draining because I don't see the energy needs decreasing. I just see them ever increase. Whereas I can go out into the natural world and it's like, wow, I mean, look at what manifests, look at what happens and, and grows from this. 
without all these outside inputs. It's thriving just with what's freely at hand. And that's what really excites me. When I learned that more rain falls on the city of Tucson than the entire population consumes of municipal water in a year, I thought, wow, it seems like we should be able to live off rainwater. So I decided to start by seeing could I set up my landscape, my garden, so that it could rely primarily or even better entirely on rainwater. Got the rain gauge. And in that 10 minute downpour, we got almost three quarters of an inch, 0.70. Sweet. <laughs> After I got the plants established, I had to cut them off of city water. I had a fair number of plant deaths. What I was learning was what plants are hardier and can make it and thrive. Similarly, I would go out on walks and hikes and regularly check in on plants I'd see out in the wild and say, well, what enables them to make it? Mr. Zephaniah Piri Maseko, the water farmer who was one of my main mentors, he since passed. He was in a situation where he was politically active against the all-white Rhodesian government, and he was uh, under uh, house arrest. He couldn't leave his property. I was allocated to a land the very poor uh, uh, soil, a, a land that couldn't even produce anything because uh, soil erosion had taken quite a lot of uh, fertility from it. So he had to figure out on this degraded, eroding plot of land, how was he going to support his family of eight with no job, no income? How could he grow food so they would at least eat? So he had to figure out, well, I do have rain sometimes. How can I make that available longer? During the rain season, there was plenty of water flowing down. Then this water had no anyone using it. I then made a structure over this way so that I could harness that water. With this pipe, the water that is utilized in this uh, pit is taken down below, then into some other infiltration pits. It helps the soil down below. He taught himself how to make these, and he's digging them when he's literally in chains. The majority of peoples and cultures on this planet are called the developing world or the third world. And then we always put us as the first world, like we got it down. I think it's the opposite a good majority of the time. We have this temporary luxury of being able to purchase ourselves out of a, a dilemma for a little while longer. You go to a place where people have uh, fewer resources seemingly available to them, they have to get much more creative. When we buy something, we are not evolving ourselves. We are sidestepping the issue, and we're becoming weaker. Just before he, uh, <clears throat> oof, just before he passed away, I got to go back and visit him again, 20 years after I had first visited him. And I was worried when I was going to go down there that Oh, yeah, it's not as good as I remember. And I go back, and it is 
far better than I remember because in those 20 years since I've last seen him, he's been evolving the system even further. I mean, there, there's just fruit everywhere. It, it was insane. And he, he had abandoned his wells because the, the water level had risen to such an extent it came to the surface. He no longer needed his wells to irrigate his fields. It was incredible. That's the kind of person that I want to be around. That's the kind of person that I want to inspire me. If we were all harvesting rainwater, as I advocate, if everybody was doing this, we would be recharging our aquifer with our free, higher quality local waters. At the same time, we would be dramatically reducing our need to pump water from the aquifer in the first place. And instead of sending our lightly used gray water, the water that goes down our shower drain or whatnot to the sewer, we instead send that to the landscape. So we're using water multiple times instead of just once and then throwing it away. We don't throw anything away. All waste becomes resources. And we learn to mimic the planet's hydrologic cycle. Water tables would be rising. We would start to bring back longer ephemeral and then eventually perennial flows of some of our waterways. If everyone was doing this water harvesting as I advocate, every street would be shaded and canopied. We'd have a much cooler, beautiful, livable community. That shade irrigated with nothing more than the runoff from the hardscape surfaces. Our, our water quality, our air quality, all this would improve because we have much more vegetation and we'd have a lot more people that are healthy because a lot more people would walk and bike because it would be comfortable and enjoyable to do so. We would have a much more local place-based cuisine because we'd be growing so much more food. Here in the Sonoran Desert, there's over 400 native food-bearing plants. The Tona Autumn, they were some of the healthiest people around because they were tapped into that diet. We can learn from the people of here as well as the plants of here. We had one of the largest mesquite forests in the world. That's all been obliterated since we depleted the flow of the river and dropped the groundwater level. That, that forest is gone. So we can bring that forest back but now, instead of just along the Santa Cruz River, this can be along every street, every walkway, and every yard. Everything I do is really easy, okay? It, and it takes no high-tech equipment, nothing higher tech than a shovel, a hand shovel. So anyone with uh, just basic physical ability can do this and make these transformations. That's not a problem. The difficult part is this requires a 180 degree shift in the way we see the world and think. That's the challenge. That profile of Brad Lancaster was produced by David Finster. You can watch a much longer version of the story you just heard on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.
Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.